After the miscarriages, it became very noticeable when uh, other people had babies. Uh, one of our struggles, and I don't love to admit this, was being excited like we had been before our babies died about people's babies being born. And, and we had a, a lot of practice in our church uh, during that time, uh, lots of babies being born. And, uh, you know, to be honest with you, it... Uh, it was probably just partly that, that these babies, these new babies that were born around us drew us back to the fact that we had lost our babies. It was probably an ounce of jealousy. It was probably an ounce of comparison. Like, I'm a pastor. I'm a pretty nice guy. And I hate to say this out loud even, but, but why, why my babies and not yours? Uh, and uh, it was a difficult thing to deal with, just this, this wanting to be excited for people, but at the same time, these, this conjuring up of feelings every time a baby was born around us or other people had exciting things to happen and knowing that I wanted to be excited but not feeling quite as excited as I had before. And the interesting thing is uh, about these feelings and this, this kind of difficulty that Bryn and I experienced was in, in the fact that it must be normal because almost every person who has taken time to talk to us about our grief and, and to express sympathy about the miscarriages since they found out, uh, have, have all, almost always they say something along the lines of, it must be really tough when so many people are having babies around you. And, and so the, this feeling uh, apparently was normal, and apparently it is one that, that people uh, outside of Bryn and I understand, this idea of, of trying to, to be happy for others in the midst of your own kind of suffering. And uh, the truth is, and this might be the most profound thing I say in this whole sermon, but oftentimes what is normal is not what is right or good. And the world wants us to kind of think that, that normal is is how we determine what is right and wrong, but the truth is, and I think we know this when we look deep inside of ourselves, what is normal is not always right or wrong. And in the Bible, we find a letter written by a man named Paul. He was an apostle of Jesus. He had an encounter with Jesus that we'll talk about on Easter. And he wrote most of what we call the New Testament. And he pins these words uh, in Romans twelve fifteen that I find fairly easy to do most of the time. But in the midst of grief, I think that they are the hardest words maybe in the entire Bible to accept and, and even more to live out, to put into practice. He says this, rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. Now, the mourning part is pretty easy for me. I mean, I can be the happiest guy in the world and then somebody tells me something very sad, very very tragic, and I find it pretty easy to empathize with them and, and to mourn with them. And, and maybe it's just because I was having a nice day and then they told me this sad story and it ruined my day and I'm sad for the loss of my good day or I don't know, but, but it's really easy for me to empathize when it comes to, to the negative side of things. Like, I hear your story and it's sad and, and it makes makes me feel sad. I naturally want to be sad with you. And I don't know if you're like me, but when it comes to rejoicing with those who rejoice in the midst of my own sorrow and grief, I, and I think most of, of humanity, find it very difficult. It's almost something that seems like it might be impossible, something that seems like maybe, maybe the writer Paul was wrong when he said it. And today what I want to look at is first why we should do it and second of all I want to I show how it's possible. Now if you're thinking like I don't know I mean 
I'm not in the midst of grief. I'm not, I don't, I don't have a situation like that. I don't know if this will connect with me. I, let me just give you like a few of the things that maybe you could see in your own life where, where this becomes a struggle. Rejoicing with those who rejoice even when you don't feel like it, even when your life is sad. How about this? If, if you're unmarried, uh, going to a wedding, and I, I know I've experienced that before I was married and maybe some of you have experienced that and you go to these weddings. It's not like your best friend or anything. It's just someone that you know you got invited and you wish you had enough and you're sitting there and they're talking about how perfect their love is and, and you just got broken up with and, and you're thinking like, I'm, this is never gonna happen for me and I kind of hate these people, but I'm gonna smile anyway. You know, like it, uh, there's free food or whatever, but, but it's, like, it's really like this difficult thing and I know this, like if, if you're unmarried and, and you feel like you want to be married especially, and maybe you're getting older, like past the point that society tells you is normal again, normal is not always right, but normal to be married, and you're sitting through this wedding, and you know you're supposed to be rejoicing, but it's just not that easy because you don't have what they have. Here's another one. Someone gets a new job when you hate your job. Like you're sitting there and you're like, hearing about how great their new workplace is and about how many perks they have and how much money they're going to be making and all this stuff. And you're just like, oh man, I got to wake up and go to work tomorrow and I don't want to hear about it. And it's really difficult to like rejoice with these people, right? And then, and then there's like just when people are successful in general in an area where you're not successful and this could include like they get something that you can't afford. Like somebody starts talking about their new car and then you look at yours and thankfully I'm not a car person or I'd be depressed all the time. But, but like you're looking at your car and, and they're bragging about theirs and how it has Pandora built in and how fast it is and you're just like I could never afford that and, and it's really hard to care, right? And it's really hard to be excited with them and, and, and even if you go, if it goes on if it's bad enough it's like it's it's hard to even feel happy at all like you want to be angry at them for even sharing their experience when you can't have the same experience social media has made this just like the worst thing ever right because good social media users they only put positive things on online right and, and and if you are like sitting at home and you know what's really going on in your own life but all you see is these smiley pictures with thumbs up and people are always at the beach and everything is always great and it's always perfect and you're like wow my life is terrible I'm not happy for you I don't care that you were in Hawaii I don't care that that your life is good I don't care that you have a new car I don't care that you have a new boyfriend you're gonna have a new one next week anyway but that's a different point I don't care about these things and it's really hard in the world that we live in uh, to rejoice with people because all we ever see is their rejoicing and we know the things that go on in our own personal lives. It's not always perfect, even if what we put online and what we see from other people online is perfect. And it's hard, it's really hard to not be upset by it, to not be jealous by it, to not be frustrated by it, but it's even harder. It's really much harder to rejoice with the people who are rejoicing, who are celebrating. And so today, these two questions. First, why should you rejoice when you're grieving? Why should you rejoice with others when you're grieving? I mean, it doesn't feel normal. It doesn't seem like something that's natural. It doesn't seem like something that we want to do. So why should we do it? And then the second question is, how is it possible to do? I mean, is it possible, but more, how is it possible to make that happen in your life and to be a person like that? And so I wanna look at Romans 12, 15 today, but I wanna look at what really surrounds Romans 12, 15. And so I'll start in verses one and two. If you have a Bible, you can open there. If you 
you have a smartphone, open there and, and follow along. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and p- proper worship. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Now, there's a couple of things in this, this section, these just two verses that are really important for laying a foundation for, for why you would even think about rejoicing with those who rejoice in the midst of your grief. Why, why you should even be bothered if you're struggling with something and somebody else is celebrating and you don't feel like celebrating with them. And the first one, the most key part of this whole deal is that it's in view of God's mercy. What Paul writes in chapter 12 is really in view of what Jesus did for us. And you cannot, you will not be able to live out the things that he says in verses three through the end of Romans 12 if you don't have in view the mercy of God. The mercy of God that Paul refers to is simply that Jesus came to earth to die for sinners. The Bible tells this story of humanity and humanity is sinful and fallen. They do things really that are wrong, that are against God, that they feel guilty for, that they, that they struggle to get over, that they wish they had never done. All of you have experienced that. There's things that you can look back at. Even right now as I talk and think, wow, I wish, I wish, I wish that I never would have done that. And Jesus looked down and he saw that humanity was in this place. And so he he came as the son of God to earth. He was born of a virgin named Mary and he lived a perfectly sinless life. No sin, he did nothing that he looked back on and said, I shouldn't have done that. Everything he did, he should have done. And then near the end of his life, he started preaching and teaching to the masses and saying, look, I'm, I'm the savior of the world. I'm here to forgive sins. I'm here to make things right. I'm here to set up a kingdom, a spiritual kingdom. And then after three years of that, He was brutally beaten and he was killed by crucifixion. He died on a cross and on that cross, the Bible tells us that all of the things that you have done wrong were nailed to it. They were all nailed there so that you could have forgiveness, so that you could have the guilt that you experienced removed from your life. And Paul in the book of Romans tells us that if we believe in that, if we believe in the the story that I just told you, that Jesus came to earth to die to remove the guilt of your sins, then we are saved and we can one day spend eternity in heaven. And Paul stops in Romans 12 and he's going to get very practical. He's going to talk about how people should live his life, uh, live their lives, but he wants to say one more time that everything he says in the rest of the book of Romans is because with the view on God's mercy that he sent Jesus to die as the savior of the world. And so the quick first part of the answer, I mean, it, it, Why should we do this? It's because we're trying to serve God. And then he goes on and he says that because of this mercy, we should offer our our lives as living sacrifices. Now to understand that, you need to look back at the Old Testament. If you look back in the Old Testament, you see that in order to worship God, in order to please God, they would literally kill animals. They had a sacrificial system. And Paul is saying, thankfully, that we are to be a living version of that. Good thing he didn't just say a sacrifice because that would have given everybody the wrong impression and would have been really bad for society. But he said, we are to be a living sacrifice. And that means just like the animals, our entire lives are presented to God. And then he says that our minds should be renewed, should be transformed so that we are able to know what God's will is. 
So you put this all together, and what Paul is saying is that everything said in the rest of this chapter, including rejoice with those who rejoice, uh, are to be because we recognize how great of mercy God has had on us if we are Christians, how much mercy and grace he has poured out in his son Jesus. And we say out of that, I want to give you every ounce of me. And we want to be just like you. We want to live just like you, Jesus, just like you would want us to, God. And when you look at the story of Jesus, you find a man, and I'll come back to this, that really was good about mourning with those who mourn and rejoicing with those who rejoiced. And if we want to be like him, then we'll need to put it into practice. Now the next six verses talk about serving in the body of Christ, that is the church, and it talks about really how we are to use our spiritual gifts, that's gifts that that come upon Christians by the Holy Spirit, special talents and abilities, so that they can serve the church, and we're supposed to use that, and that's all part of being transformed and living like Jesus wants us to live and all of that, but I want to skip over those, and I want to go all the way down to verse 9, and this is what it says. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, excuse me, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Now I just say this up front, here's a list of things that are not very tangible. They don't, it's really hard to to say, "Am, am I actually doing these things? And he's going to get to the more tangible things, the things that you can actually see in your life in the next few verses. But this list of things right here is more about what happens inside of you in your spirit and your heart. And so he's beginning to give us a blueprint for who we must be in order to do the things that we want to do on the outside. And I just want to hit on these briefly. He says that love must be sincere. I don't want to harp on this too much. We just spent four weeks talking about love in this church just a handful of weeks ago. And we defined love one more time as them above you as their goodness you pursue because of their value. Love is really looking at somebody else saying, wow, you are important. You have worth. You have value. And so because of that, I will lower myself in order to build you up and help you become all that God wants you to be. If you missed that sermon series, you can go to creeksidebiblechurch.org backslash love to find and, and you can listen to it and you'll find out exactly what a sincere love looks like. The next thing he says is that we must hate what is evil and we must cling to what is good. I want you to notice that he doesn't just say avoid evil. Because a lot of times in modern day Christianity, that's how we think. If I can just walk the line, not give in to the things that I'm not supposed to do, but I'll get as close as possible. I'll get right next to evil. I'll get right next to bad. But as long as I don't cross the line, that's okay. But Paul doesn't say that. Notice, he says, hate. Hate what is evil. He wants you to abhor what is evil. He wants you to loathe what is evil. He doesn't want you to kind of go, oh, what can I get away with? You know, how close to the line can I get? He wants you to hate the bad things that you want to do, that your flesh tells you to do. He wants you to absolutely hate them. And he wants you to cling tightly to that which is good, that which you ought to be doing, that which you know you should do. He says, be devoted to one another in love. It's an interesting phrase, be devoted to one another in love, because it doesn't just say love people. That's a really easy part. I mean, we know that, that we could like 
love each other. We can claim to love each other. But he's talking about something that takes more commitment. Uh, the phrase can be translated brotherly affection or kindly affection. And he's really talking about moving deeper into relationships with people. Not just this kind of I love you, but really uh, just moving into deeper relationship with one another and being committed in some way, it seems, to loving. You see, all people love. But Christians are supposed to love, as we talked about several weeks ago, everybody. And so it's not just that I, I love. I mean, that's easy. If you just said love each other, I could say, yeah, I kind of love people. But he's saying, look, be committed to that love in your life. Be committed to loving each other. And then he says, honor one another above yourselves. That's a, a big statement, and it really means to think about others. It's more important than you. I mean, if you have a choice in your life to bring honor to yourself, to make yourself look good, or to make somebody else look good, then what Paul is saying is you need to always choose to make the other person look good. It's a pretty simple statement, but it's a very difficult thing to do. Never lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor. This might become one of my new life verses. I think it's a really important thing that Paul says here. The word lacking means slow, tardy, or slothful. So he's saying don't be slow. And the word fervor refers to something that is literally boiling, like you would boil water on your stove. And you put those two things together and he's saying, hey, look, don't be slow in serving God, but instead have like a, a boiling level inside of you that says, I want to do what God wants me to do and I want to serve him. Now that could be like, that will be probably at some point like a whole different sermon. Because just in your heads, just stop and side note, just parenthetical to the rest of the sermon. I mean, where do you fall in that? Are you kind of a person who's like, yeah, I'll, I'll serve God, I guess. If I get around to doing what God wants me to do, serving the church and to praying and spending time in his word and to helping others and to loving people, I'll get around to that whenever I have time. Or are you like boiling inside? to serve God? Are you like looking for opportunities? Like I, I hope that God inconveniences me today with a person that I can help, that I can serve, that I can be there for. I hope that I run into somebody that needs Jesus. Not like, oh, I really hope nobody gets in my way and I'll do it if it happens, but I gotta get to work and I got things to do. Are you boiling to serve God? Because that's what Paul says we should be doing. And then he says, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. It's interesting to be joyful in our hope. When I read that, I oftentimes immediately jump to the idea of grief and like he's saying to be joyful in the midst of grief, but that's not actually what it says. It, it means to be joyful in the hope that we have. And if we're Christians, then we have the hope of heaven. And the question is, are we actually joyful about that? I mean, do you actually spend time being excited about the fact, if you're a Christian, that someday you get to go to heaven? And that Jesus has forgiven you of your sins. And that your life has been made whole by our Savior. Saying be joyful in that. Not like just know about it. Not just kind of think about it. But be excited about what you have in your relationship to Christ. And then he says patient in affliction. And we think of patience as like I'm not going to react. It's terrible. All this trouble's coming. I'm never going to do anything. But the word really is it's used most often in the Bible. References continuing to do what is right in the midst of difficulty. So what Paul is talking about was exactly what he's experiencing in his own life where he's being beaten for the sake of Christ, but yet he's preaching Christ anyway. He's being thrown in prison for talking about Jesus, yet he's talking about Jesus anyway. 
He's talking about when he says this, doing what is right, even when it is very difficult to do. Even when you're being beaten, even when you have the chance to be killed, as it was in his case, for doing what is right, continuing to do it. And then he says, faithful in prayer. That could be like another sermon too, right? I mean, I just, just a quick question, and I, I don't, this isn't the point, but I'll just ask, I mean, one quick question, like, how often did you pray this week? Would you call it faithful, or did you just kind of get it in? I mean, was it the last thing you do in the night? If you can, if you're not too tired, if there's no show on, if, I mean, if you can go down the list, or are you faithful in prayer? And so Paul gives us this list. And these are things, and this is the really interesting part of, in, in my mind as I read this list. These are not things that just happen. These are things that you must choose to do. But they're also not magical. I mean, you can wake up every day and say, I'm going to make my love sincere today. I will lower myself for others. You can choose to do that. You can choose every single day to say, I will hate what is evil. It doesn't mean you'll never do something wrong. It doesn't mean you'll make mistakes. But you can wake up every single day and you can say, I'm gonna hate what is evil today. I'm gonna be so far away from it. You can wake up every day and say, I'm gonna be devoted to somebody else. I'm gonna be devoted to the people in my church. I'm gonna be devoted to the people in my life. I'm gonna be devoted to them in love. You can wake up and you can choose to do that. You can choose every single day to say, I will make other people look good before I will make myself look good. You can choose every single day to boil inside and say, I know what Jesus did for me and what I want to do today is I want to serve him more than anything else. You can wake up every single day and you can choose to serve the Lord. You can choose to be excited about the hope you have. You can choose to be patient and do what's right in the middle of affliction. You can choose to be faithful in prayer. Paul shows us this list of internal things and I think when we read it, at least me, I maybe shouldn't speak for you, but when I read it, I go, wow, I wish I could be like that. But as I studied and I looked at these individual things, it just became clear to me. These are decisions we can make. They're not easy decisions, but you can wake up every single day and you can decide to try to act and think like this. And really you must decide to think like this like Christ, if you're gonna put into practice the things that he says next. Romans 12, 13, share with the Lord's people who are, on, are in need, practice hospitality. Now this is the only statement that's specific in this whole passage to Christians. He's talking about sharing with those who in need, are in need and it really means that. It means to, to give of yourself for the needs of others. To be hospitable is to open your home to somebody in English, we know that, but it's really to entertain or show love to strangers, people that you don't know very well. That's what the biblical word means. And here's, here's the thing. In our modern American culture, we don't like either of these things. I mean, I don't know why we tell kids to share, but then about like, I don't know, 12 years old, sharing just goes out the window. We're not gonna share our stuff. I'm not gonna, I mean, they can take care of themselves. They can figure things out. This is my stuff. I don't want you intruding on it. I, this is my time, this is my money, this is my energy, and I'm gonna use it on me. I don't wanna share with any of you. It's pretty difficult. And the world tells us it's a dog-eat-dog world, right? And, and it says, like, go get what you can get and let other people think about themselves. And, and Paul is saying that we need to share with each other who are Christians. And he's saying that we need to be kind and loving and any, even entertain those people that we don't even know. 
This isn't just talking about Christians. And we don't like, I mean, we don't like opening our houses anymore. 50 years ago, the church, what happened is if you like showed up and visited, then somebody would knock on your door. And if we did that now, nobody would ever come back to our church, right? And, and, and people, 50 years ago, you knocked and you, you tried to lead people to Jesus by, by opening their doors. And now they would be like, well, you're either a Mormon or you're a Jehovah's Witness and I'm not opening it. I'm not going to open my door, and if I do, I'm going to immediately tell you how busy I am. Or you might be a salesman of vacuums, right? I mean, there's only three options. People don't like people coming to their houses anymore. And yet there's this command, really a command, for us to be hospitable, to show love, to entertain strangers. And it will not happen in our lives. These are things that we can see, right? I mean, you can, you can ask yourself right now, am I sharing with people in need? You can ask yourself, am I practicing hospitality? Really easy questions. I mean, you can see it in your life. It's very clear. There's a yes or no. It's very distinct. And the truth is, what I see in this passage is that you will not, you will not put these things into practice if you do not train yourself to think like the verses uh, 8 through 12. Then he says this. How do you like this one? Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse To bless is to say nice things about somebody. Now think about this. Somebody's persecuting. This is worse than like being mean to you, but we can insert because we haven't been persecuted lately. We can just insert like somebody being mean to you. Somebody's mean to you. How do you talk about them? Paul is commanding in scripture, the Bible, which was inspired by God, that we say nice things about the people who are doing the worst things to us. That's hard unless we are training ourselves to think like Jesus. We don't just wake up and do that. I promise you this. If you go, okay, here's my plan today. I'm gonna really, 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 really try to say nice things about those who are are being mean to me, you won't do it. You just wake up and say, I'm gonna really, 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 really try to show love to strangers and to share my needs, you won't do it. It only happens when you think like Jesus, and you wake up every day saying, I am going to focus on the things that I need to focus on. And then Romans 12, 15, we pick up our verse, rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. We'll come back to that. And then Romans 12, 16, again, live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud. Be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. The idea of harmony is to have the same mind as other people. And the last two sentences point to us choosing on a daily basis to lower ourselves. And in all of this, we see one clear truth. And that is that the only way for us to live out the things that Paul tells us to live out is to every day make a decision to think the way that God would have us think, to focus on the things that God would have us focus on. And to do our best on our insides and our heart to be like Christ. He has this list and I just want to read it again. This is the list. I mean, if you wake, this is just the truth and the reality that, that I see. Here it is. Ready? If you, if you will choose every day to say, I'm going to love I'm going to push away evil and cling to what is good. I'm going to choose to put others' honor above my own. I'm going to choose to be passionate about serving God. I'm going to choose to celebrate my hope. I'm going to choose to live for God when it's hard. I'm going to choose to be faithful in prayer. And I'm going to choose to think of others as more important than myself. If you really make that decision, then I think that you have a chance to rejoice with those who rejoice and to mourn with those who mourn. 
Here's what I noticed about Brynn and I, and I don't say this to act like I'm awesome or anything like that. I've already expressed that it was very hard. But I've noticed about me and I've noticed about Brynn that we were much better at rejoicing with people than others that I know who have gone through difficult things in their lives. Uh, I've, I noticed that, that while it was hard for us to rejoice with people in our church that were having babies and people outside of our church that were having babies, we still had some level of excitement inside of us. We still had some level of, of joy. We still were able to, at least on the outside, show the people who had babies that we were happy for them, that we were excited for them, and that was real. We weren't fake. Uh, I'm not a very fake person, if you didn't know that about me. It's, it's hard for me to not wear my emotions on my sleeve. And so uh, we were able to do that to some level. And I've been so impressed with my wife through the whole thing and how she really, really cares. I mean, she cares about the babies in the church, even though in some way they have become a representation of our loss, but she wants to see them succeed. She wants to see them grow up and be healthy and happy. She cares about them. She's excited to see them. And so just as I ponder this and I ask, like, how? How are, how are we better than a lot of people? Because a lot of people wouldn't have handled it as well as us. And I think that the simple answer is that Bryn and I partly because of our positions here at this church, partly just because of our relationship with Christ, have made decisions long ago to do our best to love and to push away evil and to lower ourselves for the good of others and to, to think like Jesus, to try to be like Jesus. And so this command, rejoice with those who rejoice, even though it is extremely hard, extremely difficult for us, we've had a fighting chance. And it's because at some point along the way, we said, look, we're not as important as we think we are. We want to be like Jesus. We want to love people. We want to care about people. We want to develop the mind of Christ. Paul says something very similar elsewhere that's, that's worth reading, and it's about Jesus, and it shows us who Jesus was and why we must learn to, to mourn with those who mourn and rejoice with those who rejoice if we're gonna be like him. Philippians 2, 1 through 8 says this, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now you might say, why is this important? I mean, who cares if, if I don't rejoice with those who rejoice, if I don't mourn with those who mourn, if I don't really begin the day and think about in my life becoming more like Christ and thinking more like Christ. Why, why does it matter? And I think it matters because of the title of a book that I once read. And the, and the title is that they, they like Jesus but hate the church. And it's a book where this man took 
relationships that he had with non-Christians and he just turned them into interviews. And he knew people from coffee shops. He knew people uh, from things that he did in his life. And he just went up to him and said, can I interview for this book? And let's talk about what you think about Jesus. And let's talk about what you think about the church. And he found that almost every person that exists in America likes Jesus, what Jesus stood for, who Jesus was. But not many people outside of the church like the church anymore. And I think the reality is, it's because the church, which is supposed to be, and I said this last week too, the embodiment of Jesus on the earth today. I mean, if people say, if I could just meet Jesus and talk to Jesus, I'd think about being a Christian. The answer should always be, well, you can come to our church and you'll find exactly what Jesus looks like. You go, well, that's a little bit too much responsibility for church for the church for churches i agree but jesus did it not me i mean honestly and that's that's how he set up and why he set up the church to be his embodiment on earth and the sad reality is there's a dichotomy between what people think of jesus and what people think of the church and sometimes it's because they view jesus wrong but far too often it's because the church looks nothing like jesus and i think that one of the greatest things that we could do as a church, and that the American church could do to once again look like Jesus is to truly celebrate each other's successes together and truly mourn each other's losses together. I think if people just came into our church and saw that we were genuinely excited for one another when somebody succeeded and we genuinely were hurt for one another when people failed, then they would look at us and they go, wow, I wanna be a part of that. The saying goes, misery loves company, and it's true. And it's because as humans, we don't struggle alone very well, and we hate to rejoice alone. I mean, think about what you do as soon as you get excited about something. You like post it to Facebook, or you call your family. You want people to be excited with you. And far too often, what I've seen in the church, and what exists in the church far too often, is people that are so disconnected that they don't care about each other's successes, and even there's, there's fighting and there's, there's mourning when other people succeed. You can see it even in the way that churches think about each other. Like, oh, I can't believe that they had that many people this Sunday. Or I, I just, oh, they built a new building and we haven't. Or, you know, and it's like, why? Why is it like this? Doesn't look anything like Jesus who literally came down to earth because he, he was so caught up in what we felt and what we were experiencing and the fact that we would mourn for eternity. That he came down here and said, I'm gonna come down and I'm gonna, I'm gonna mourn in my life. I'm gonna suffer in my life. I'm gonna die so that you can have life. And he promises, and this is even crazier, he promises that because of what he did for us, if we accept his gift of salvation, then someday we will all celebrate together we will all be joyous together in eternity in heaven and what i want you to hear is that if we're going to look like jesus then we need to learn to rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn it's really easy on a personal level to kind of hide and go i'm not going to do that i'm sad today i don't want to be excited but when enough christians think like you then christianity looks like you and doesn't look like jesus and so what I'm asking for you to do, can you put that, those verses back up four through, or I mean eight through 12? Nine through 12, excuse me, nine through 12. I want you to look at this list this week. 
And I want even just for one week for you just to make this like your mantra, your, your mission statement. And I want you to wake up in the mornings and I want you to read verses 9 through 12 of Romans chapter 12. And, and I want you to stop looking at this because too often we do this in scripture. We think these are like magic potions. Like, oh, that would be really cool if I made my love sincere. But nobody ever commands somebody to do something that's magical, right? I mean, if things are commanded, then, then we have a choice in them. And God ordained for these things to be commanded upon our lives. They're not easy. We'll make mistakes. Don't get me wrong. Sometimes we won't do them as the course of the day goes on. But we have a decision to do these things. I mean, if I stood up here and commanded you to fly, like, that's, not, that's stupid, right? And I'm convinced that Paul was not stupid because I've read all the letters that he wrote that got into the Bible. And I'm convinced that God's not an idiot. And so he has told us, hey, love must be sincere. So wake up and say, okay, I'm making my love sincere today. It's not gonna be fake. It's not gonna be superficial. It's going to be real. And wake up and say, hey, you know what? I'm gonna be passionate about serving Jesus today. I'm going to boil over inside of me. I don't feel like it necessarily, but I know he deserves it. And so that's my decision. And so my hope for you is that you will take, even just for one week, maybe it will be the rest of your lives, that'd be cool, but just take these verses, verses nine through 12 of, of Romans 12, and say, today, today I'm committed to this. I'm committed to trying to think like Jesus thought. I'm committed to trying to be like Jesus was because the world needs us. It needs us. They're crying out. I mean, the world is desperate for people who will mourn with them and people who will rejoice with them. And not just superficially, but really. Where we go, I'm sad because you're sad. I care. And I'm happy because you're happy. And so I want you to wake up Make a decision every day. It doesn't have to be in the morning. I find it easier in the morning. But just say, I'm going to make a decision to think like Jesus. And what I believe will happen in our church, what I believe will happen in your life, is that you will start to see decisions being made. And you will start to see the outside stuff, the stuff that you can actually hold on to and grasp and look at and examine in your own life. You'll start to see that change. And I think you'll be hospitable to people. And I think that you'll care about sharing with other people. And I think that you'll learn to talk nicely about people that are just simply not that nice to you. Christianity has had it backwards for too long. We say, here, Bible says I need to do this. So we just start trying to fix our behaviors. Behaviors are hard to fix. But if you're a Christian, you can think like Jesus. You can learn to think like Jesus, then your behaviors will naturally change. Will you pray with me? Lord, I just, I just ask God that, that you would um, let us be a church and you know that connection is a really big deal to us at this church and uh, I, just, I just would pray God that, that we would be a, a church God that would, that would really learn to think like you so that we can care God more about you Lord and more about others. And Lord we, I'll just admit this, we are so self-centered, we are so internally focused that we almost forget that other people exist sometimes God I mean we just we just wake up and and we just go through the motions to 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 make ourselves live Lord and and we really God are a a sad picture of you so often 
And Lord, I pray that we would, we would just take that list of things and we would work it at making them an internal part of ourselves, Lord. I just think it'd be so cool, God. And I'm thankful we have a church that's pretty good about this, Lord. But I just think it'd be so cool even more. If we just had a church where, where we were just so excited for each other, Lord. I just think it'd be so cool, Lord, if we had uh, a softball team this summer that if we struck out and somebody else hit a home run, we just, we just felt happy and, and not sad about striking out, Lord. And I just, I just think it would be so cool if we had a church where somebody called us and they knew that when they were sad that we would empathize with them and we would deeply and passionately care about them, Lord. And that we would just be a church that, that's not just, you know, superficially nice to each other. And, and Lord, I thank you for the, the unity and the level of unity in this church and how there's not infighting and how there's not divisions, God. But I want to see it go so much deeper, just so much further, God, where we, where we are rejoicing for those who rejoice and mourning for those who mourn. And I pray as it happens in our church, God, that you would expand it outside of our church, Lord. And that we who are part of Creekside Bible Church, God, would, would take it to the rest of the world so that if our neighbors and the people that we interact with at work and the people that we are friends with that are not Christians so that they knew that when they had a problem, they could come to us and they would find people who cared and they knew that when they were excited, they could come to us and they could share with us and we would be excited with them and not start talking about the great things in our life, Lord. And God, I believe that that is more than anything besides you, what our world needs. People who really care about others and not just about themselves. So I pray, God, that you would help it to start here in us as we learn and develop our minds to be more like your mind. In your name, amen.